contemporary songs that's ever been written. What a wonderful thing. You may be seated. Take your Bible, please, and turn to the sixth chapter of the book of the Revelation, chapter six of the book of Revelation. In just a moment, we're going to read three verses beginning in verse nine. While you're turning to that in your Bible, or getting your phone ready, if that's where you read your scripture, or your iPad, or however else you do it. Uh, while you are turning to that, may I welcome all the new students also. It is my happy task uh, to pronounce you officially Southwesterners and tell you that it is a, a heavy um, responsibility that you will carry into the generations and the generations to be faithful to Christ and to point always totally to him. Thank you for coming to Southwestern. I pray that these will be the happiest and most encouraging days of your life. I pray that even when you're walking into a final examination, you'll be saying, isn't it wonderful to be with God's people here in the great tribulation? And so you just have a good time while you're here. That's exactly what we want every one of you to do. Well, in the book of the Revelation and chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, we read these unusual words. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Well, a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. What a strange text, especially for a convocation day. Why would a man choose a text like that? Well, Dr. Blazing has already introduced you to the fact that this is a very special day in Baptist history, a day that marks the rediscovery during the Reformation period of the idea of a believer's church. Most of the focus has been placed on baptism, but that is unfortunate. For as important as baptism is, it was not the fact of baptism, it was the fact that it was believer's baptism that made all the difference in the world. It was the insistence of those who gathered that night in the home of Felix Mons that in order to be a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, one needed to have been born again. He needed to have had an experience of heartfelt sorrow for sin, which led him in turn to repent of that sin and to place his faith in Christ alone. And when he did that, something remarkable happened in his soul. The Holy Spirit of God moved in and regenerated his soul. 
word regeneration is a beautiful word. It occurs only two times as such in the New Testament. It's the Greek word palingenesia. Isn't that a beautiful word? Palin means again. Genesia is to become, to become again. It's used in two different ways and the only two times it occurs in the New Testament. The first time it is used of personal regeneration, and the second time it is used of the regeneration of the earth. Aren't you aware of global warming? Aren't you cognizant of the way in which we are mistreating our earth and world, and it's spiraling down, and they tell us that the second law of thermodynamics is involved such that uh, our world is gradually moving into randomness and will ultimately be destroyed? Let me tell you something. When Jesus died on the cross, he arranged for the regeneration of individual souls, but he also arranged for the regeneration of the earth. And there's going to come a wonderful day as signified by the plaiting of the crown of thorns that was put upon his head when the atonement of Christ will also bring about the renovation of this entire cosmos. What a wonderful aspect of the regenerating work of the Lord. But the early Anabaptists said Unless a man has been born again, he cannot follow the Lord in real baptism. That means that if you're baptized as an infant, that may be all and well and good as far as the parents are concerned, but no infant yet has anything to say about it except to squall at being suddenly uh, inundated with that water. And so he has no idea that there is a faith commitment of any kind involved. And so they rediscovered the idea of the believer's church. Well, you would think the whole world would rejoice in that, would you not? Quite to the contrary, not only were they opposed by the secular establishment of the day, but they were also opposed by all of the religious establishments of the day, both Roman Catholic and Protestant. So much so that the very Protestant reformers that we honor and that I personally honor, people like Luther and Calvin, just to name two relatively unknown ones, became involved in the persecution of these people who insisted on a believer's church. Well, when I understand that the whole history of the church is a history of bloodshed and martyrdom. I come to understand the opening of the fifth seal. Now, may I set the stage for you? John is probably a centenarian. He's probably a hundred years of age, almost as old as I am. And uh, he has been exiled to the island of Patmos, a rock quarry, no likelihood that he'll ever see another day of ministry separated from his beloved church, the First Baptist Church of Ephesus, by the waters of the Aegean Sea. And uh, there on that rock quarry island, which today is a beautiful island, but in those days was not even uh, uh, blessed with a tree. And there he is working 
at 100 years of age. No future in that. And yet, in the middle of that, he has a vision one Sunday morning, and God speaks to him, and he said, you're going to speak again to people and to nations and to countries throughout the world. How will he do that? Well, he gives him the apocalypse and these series of visions that occur there are then written down, and sure enough, John, now more than 2,000 years ago, lives yet to speak to people around the world. And folks, it's true. You're not through until you hear the trumpet and God calls you home. Stay at it. And so, in the midst of that, he sees a vision, one, one of the visions, and there is a, an angel standing there with a little book in his hand, and John looks at that book, and he knows it's important. He knows that whatever is in that book is absolutely crucial. Now, don't think about a book like this one. They didn't have those yet. And so, you have to think about a scroll. It is uh, uh, like this, and, and it has seven seals on it. And those seals are across the top right here like this. And in order to find out what it says, you have to open the first seal, and then you can unroll a little bit of the scroll, and you can read whatever is written there. But then you've got to open the second seal, and, and that reveals something else, and the third seal, and the fourth seal. And there's a seven-sealed book there, and John knows it's important. Who will open it? But a search is made, and there's not found anybody that is able and worthy to open the book. And John gets so caught up in the, the drama of the whole thing, and he wants so much to know what's in that book that he begins to weep. And suddenly, the angel of the Lord says, stop weeping, for the Lion of Judah has prevailed to open the seals of the book. And so, John turns around to see this lion. You ever been close to a 650-pound black-maned lion? It is earth-shaking just to be in his midst. There is something so regal about that animal as he stands, and if he looks at you, you want to go hide immediately. But whatever you do, don't run. Never, ever, ever run. All that occurs to the lion is fast food. And so, don't run. You say, I'm going to be okay if I stand there, right? No, I'm not promising that, but I am promising if you run, you're toast. And so, don't run. But they are incredible. Why such a beast? No wonder he's referred to as the king of the beast. And John turns to see the Lion of Judah. What? There's no lion there. It's a lamb. And not even the word omnos, which means a full-grown lamb, but instead it's an arneon, a little newborn lamb, with the marks of sacrifice on him. Somebody had cut his throat. He had been a sacrificial victim. And he sees the lion of Judah, which is a little lamb. Well, the lamb comes forth and takes the book, and he opens the first 
seal. Oh, what are we going to find? Well, the first seal is open. And I heard one of the four living creatures say, with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked, and out of the book jumps a white horse, and he that sat upon him had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer throughout the world. Oh, I wasn't expecting that. I better let him open the second seal, and he opens the second seal, and on leaping from the page of the scroll, the second seal, I heard this voice saying, come, and, and here comes a fiery red horse it was granted to the one who sat upon that horse to take peace from the earth. People should kill one another, and it was given to him a great sword. Man, we got to get through this. The third seal is open. And our living creatures say, come, and leaping from the pages of that scroll, there is a black horse, and he that sat upon it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, that is, just one small quart of wheat for a single day's wage. Man, that's expensive. Dear me, and not only that, but you only get three quarts of barley. So there is famine unleashed across the whole earth. People don't have anything to eat. We've got to hurry. So the lamb opens the fourth seal, and I heard a voice saying, Come, and leaping off the page once again, he sees a pale horse, and the name that was given to him was Death, and the grave followed after him. Power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and by the beast of the earth. There are seven billion people on the earth. Can you imagine a time in which nearly two billion people die in a seven-year period? It's actually a lot worse than that. By the time you add up all the numbers in the apocalypse, Three-quarters of the earth's population has been snuffed out in seven years' time. No wonder the God of creation is furiously angry at the sons of men who have taken a perfect creation and utterly ruined it with their sin and shame. There is coming a day of judgment, and when he opens the fifth seal, we're expecting to see more of that, but no, he opens the fifth seal, and he looks under the altar, and there are the souls of them that have been slain for the word of God and for the testimony they held. Now, you understand today that you're sitting in the outer court out there. Up here where I am is the Holy of Holies. And then behind us there, I'm sorry, Dr. Day, but the choir has to be the Holy of Holies. And I don't like it, but it's that way for our purposes today. Now, out here in the outer court was the altar of sacrifice. And if you'll come real close and take a look at that altar of sacrifice, you'll discover that down down on the sides of it, there are troughs that run around it. And the reason for that is that the bloody sacrifice was placed on the altar and it gave place.
place to the blood that was running down the sides of the altar and into those troughs. Now, as John sees this scene unfolding before him, what he sees in the trough is not exactly just blood, but it is actually the martyrs of the Lord Jesus, those who have given their lives, who have been slain for the Word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cry out in a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge the, uh, our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Well, that's not very Christian, is it? Now, come on, guys. Just because you've given your life for Christ doesn't mean you have to become practitioners of imprecatory prayer. It doesn't mean you have to call down the wrath of God on everything and everybody. Oh, friend, that's not what's going on here. The martyrs simply understand and know that as inevitable as anything is the judgment of God. Oh, is he long-suffering. For 2,000 years so far, since his crucifixion, since men nailed him to the tree, he has, through the means of his Holy Spirit and the Word of God and Bible preachers and teachers everywhere, he has appealed to the human family to come to him. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Don't wait to be the subject of God's judgment, but instead, be the object of God's grace. Accept what he's done for you in Christ Jesus. Receive him and receive forgiveness of sin. Trust him and have eternal life. They know that God has been unbelievably long-suffering. There's coming a day, and they simply want to know when is that day of judgment, how long, O oh Lord, before you will do this. And then our Lord has a strange message to them. He gives them a white robe, a symbol of the purity that we will someday have. And Dr. Blazing extolled, I think it was, to some great extent, my sense of humor. And I think it was tongue-in-cheek. I think that he was talking about my sinfulness. But if so, he just scraped the top of it. He did not begin to touch the rebellion of this old heart. You ever wake up in the middle of the night wishing you could be free from sin? Do you know if that never happens to you, it's probably true that you've never dealt with your sin to begin with. You see, sin becomes exceedingly sinful to somebody that's cognizant of his own failure before God. And people say, oh, I look forward to getting to heaven, going to see Jesus, going to see Mama. So forth. let me tell you what one of the greatest things about heaven is. We'll get to heaven, and I won't have a sin nature anymore. I'll never again.
rebel against God. I'll never again have a selfish thought. I'll never again be pushed out of shape about anything because I'm going to be like God meant me to be to begin with, thanks to his redemption. So they're given a white robe, a symbol of that purity, and it was said to them that they should rest for a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed just as they were was completed. There's more bloodshed. Yes. More of us will have to give our lives for Christ. Yes. Beware if you've come to seminary. It is a serious step, my friend. As you begin to prepare for ministry, you're preparing for martyrdom. But the grace of God, maybe most of you will not have to die, but some of you will. In just a few days, we're going to begin building a new building over there. One of the things in it will be a hall of martyrs that will focus particularly on those of our own students and graduates who've already paid the ultimate price for Christ in martyrdom. And we now live in a world that is more hostile than it has been since the early centuries of the church to Christianity. We now live in a land founded by people who were believers looking for freedom of religion, and all of a sudden we face everything but that, and there is open warfare against godly people. Now, you have come to prepare not for a degree, doesn't even matter. Last time I checked, God didn't have a baccalaureate degree, and it doesn't seem to have interfered with his function. <laughs> you not come here to get a degree. I hope you will. You better stay with it. You're not safe on the streets if you leave here without it. So I hope you'll finish that degree. I certainly do. But that's not why you're here. You're not even here to prepare to be a pastor of a church, to be a counselor, to be a Minister of Music, I don't know what you're here for. You're here preparing for a life of sacrificial service to the Lord that may very well end in martyrdom. It's a serious day, folks. And I hope you will take it seriously. Well, it started on October 31st, 1517. But I wonder if you know about how they lived. Michael Sattler was sentenced to death just two years later in May of 1527. Born in 1490 before the Reformation actually kicked off on October 31st, 1517, when Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the chapel church door in Wittenberg. But on this particular day in May 1527, this man who was born and then entered a Benedictine monastery as a monk and a priest. And while he was there, he did a fateful thing, one of the most dangerous things you can do. You'll be offered the opportunity to do it while you're here. I strongly counsel, do not do it. It is dangerous. 
You do it. What happens to you next? God only knows, but Sattler did it. He learned Greek and Hebrew. Oh, don't do it. Stay away from that. Because, see, when you began to read the New Testament in Greek, you began to read the Old Testament in Hebrew, you see things that you could never have seen any other way. And the Word of God finds a lodging in your soul that is so convicting you can't get away from it. Sattler began to look at all of those Benedictine monks and their behavior and their approach to life in the light of what he was learning in the Greek New Testament and the Hebrew Old Testament. And he grew so convicted, he said, this is not right before God. I have to seek the Lord. And the only option he knew was available was to become a Lutheran. And so he did. He became a Lutheran for a short while. But then there was a, a famous Anabaptist preacher by the name of Wilhelm Roybland. And Wilhelm Roybland has a way of showing up at just the right time. He's a mysterious character. We can't learn as much about him as we wish we could. I want somebody to do a doctoral dissertation on him someday because one's never been done. But he shows up at all the right times. He shows up in Sattler's life. He shows up to be the man to, to lead Balthazar Hubmayer to faith in Christ and baptize him. He just keeps popping up. He is the eternal evangelist walking around all over Europe leading people to Christ. And he finds Sattler and he says, the problem with you, you have become a Lutheran, but you're still lost. You have the right impressions, but not yet the Savior. And he led him to faith in Christ and he baptized Michael Sattler. Sattler, of course, was remarkably prepared for this ministry. After all, he knew the biblical languages, and he was thoroughly acquainted with the church fathers. He knew patristics better than most modern practitioners of patristics did. He could quote them uh, for memory. You can't live a guy like that running around, too many people coming to Christ. He became pastor in a place called Horb, and there... The authorities came upon him and incarcerated him. He wrote the original Confession of Faith, called the Schleitheim Confession of Faith, on February 24, 1527. Too dangerous. Got to get rid of this guy. And so, quick trial, after being imprisoned in the Tower of Bensdorf, and in the trial... Those who questioned him found him absolutely irrefutable. In fact, he said to them, I offer to discuss these matters of faith in any language that my judges want. That's how on top of it he really was. Got to kill him. The trial came to an end, and the sentence was given. May I read it to you? Quote, Michael Sattler shall be committed to the executioner. The latter shall take him to the square and there, first of all, cut his tongue out of his head. Then he shall be forged fast to a wagon and there with glowing iron tongs twice tear pieces 
from his body. And on the way to the site of the execution, five more times shall the tongs be applied as above, and then burn his body to power, to powder as an arch heretic. The parade began. Forged to the wagon with his hands tied. As he walked along, twice red-hot tongs placed on the fatty portions of his side until the flesh began to melt and then pulled from his body. One can scarcely imagine the agony through which the man was going. Five more times on the way to execution, the same thing was done. When they arrived at the place of execution, the fire was already going in this place, and, and so it was wafting up into the clouds, and they tied him to a wooden ladder and shoved it into the flame, thinking that it would fall flat into the flame. But somehow it caught upon some appendage, and so Sattler was chained to the ladder but in a standing position as the flame began to catch fire and the agonies began to occur. He waited as long as he could. And when the ropes burned in two and his hands were loosed, Michael Sattler looked out at the throng that had gathered to observe the execution. And among those people that were there were many of the sheep from his church there at Orb. And he lifted his hands to heaven with the victory sign. And here's what he prayed. Almighty, eternal God, thou art the way and the truth and the life. And because I have not been shown to be in error, I will with thy help to this day testify to the truth and seal it with my blood. And he died. The road to your local Baptist church is paved with the blood of martyrs. When you walk up to the seminary, never approach it, but with the awareness of the fact Beneath your feet are the blood, is the blood of those who died for you. So you've got to wait a little while. Judgment is not yet. It's coming. It's sure. But while our Lord tarries, it is our opportunity to introduce a world to Christ. Would you bow with me, please? I'm aware today that in this large of a gathering, you won't have it anywhere that you don't have 25 to 30 to 35 people who've never been saved. This isn't about anything else. We're going to study the Bible. 
we're going to learn everything we can about our world and about how to work in the church and on and on I could go but in, in the end it's not about anything else except being saved Jesus said the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost that's how he defined his mission it's about salvation I, I can't think of a greater tragedy that occurred to any man or woman than to come to seminary and attend here and then walk away and still be lost you say oh I'm a church member I've been baptized makes no difference the Bible says godly sorrow works repentance unto salvation if there's never been a time when you were heartbroken over your sinful rebellion against God there's never been a time when you said to him oh God I cannot help myself today I receive Jesus as my Savior and the fact is that you can go through all the motions but you're not yet saved say so, oh you're gonna ask us to come forward yes that would be so embarrassing since I came here to seminary then to come forward to trust Jesus you think that's embarrassing what would it be to stand before the great white throne of Christ and admit that you'd never been saved listen friend the very reason you came here was to be sure that you would know Jesus I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna ask you to examine your own heart this morning wherever you are we're going to stand and sing a couple of verses that's all we're going to have some of our professors here at the front at each aisle if God's speaking to your heart today and you want to be saved and you know or suspect that maybe you've never been today is the accepted time today is the day of salvation would you do what God says Heavenly Father thank you for this wonderful moment with these great new students and with returning students from days gone by but Lord I know that that step from death to life is the greatest longest most imposing step that anybody ever takes and that there are young men and women here right now who've never taken that step dear God May they please not leave this place until they are certain that that step has been taken. May they say right now, dear Jesus, I receive you as my Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us, please, as we sing? And the men are here at the front. You just come on right now. God speaks to your heart. It's time to do it right now. Come on. The Savior is waiting.